again, before we get into this material today, just how, I hope those of you who have been associated with church know how special it is for the Spirit to work in such a way that 163 people are baptized in one day. That, that is, you know, that is, we're almost Pentecostal. I mean, that is, that is, uh, like, that is, that is crazy, okay? Uh, and, uh, but I'd rather restrain a fanatic than resurrect a corpse, wouldn't you? I would rather do that. And just thank you, Southbrook. I hope those of you who give generously to this church, I hope you just sit and go, thank you, Lord, for letting me be a part of that. The song we sang about the addiction and just about brokenness, and you'll see as we walk through the book of Romans, it's all of us, isn't it? Everyone needs a Savior. You cannot do it on your own. And you, you are the few. I, I've been looking at those big old earth-moving machines out there, and I, think, I keep thinking about generosity with those because those things don't move without fuel. And you and your generosity are the fuel that makes this thing go. So thank you, Southbrook, for being so generous to make that happen. And we hope that you celebrated that last week. Golf writer Jerry Tardy said, and I agree, I know what brought the Roman Empire down. The emperors did not play golf. Golf is a great corrective to sinful pride. I attribute the insane arrogance of the Roman emperors to the fact that having never played golf, they never knew the chastening humility experienced by a topped chip shot. If Cleopatra had been ousted in the first round of the ladies' singles at the local club, we would have heard a lot less of her proud imperiousness. And he is saying that obviously tongue-in-cheek, but he's right. It was sinful pride that brought Roman, the Roman Empire to its knees. And, and we're going to look in this section of Romans, as we begin it today, we're going to look at the diagnostic God gives of the Roman condition, both Jew and Gentile alike, because it is eerily similar to the condition we find ourselves in as a culture today. Eerily similar. Uh, a few weeks ago, Sherry and I took a quick trip to New York City, and, um, and uh, we had a, a gift card, so we, we went to Keene's Chop House. Has anybody here by, by any ever been to Keene's Chop House in Manhattan? It, it was Anthony Bourdain's, one of his favorite restaurants. And I had the best steak of my life. I didn't know God made cows like this. <laughs> okay? I mean, it was a 12-ounce filet mignon, so just think of a softball. It was, it was a filet mignon, the softball, and it was unbelievable. And I mean, it was so, so amazing, but it was so big, I couldn't quite finish it. I had a, just a, like a few, a, like a, you know, a, a ping pong ball of ounces left, and I, and I almost asked for a doggy bag for that. It was just that good. But I didn't eat that quickly. I savored every chunk I took my time. Now, Sherry knows this. I'm one of those people I would never eat out. Food is fuel. It's not to be enjoyed. It's just, you know, eat, get done, do something with your life, okay? So I'm not that way. But I mean, we sat there and we savored this meal. We, I savored this steak. Why? Because it was unlike anything that I, had, that I have ever tasted. Now, what you're going to experience between now and next summer is you're going to experience a 12-ounce filet mignon. And I hope we cook it right, because this is rich meat. For those of you that so far in your journey, you've been used to the milk of the gospel, 
Now it's time for you to get ready for the meat of the gospel. Because that's what Romans is. Romans is this, oh my gosh, eat it one bite at a time because it is worth savoring. Now, one of the reasons we're doing this, we've been planning this, many of you know this, for about a year. It's because there has never been a more challenging time to be a follower of Jesus than this era in our lives. Your faith requires a depth intellectually that, uh, frankly, in my lifetime anyway, is, is, is unprecedented. And so we're faced with questions. How do I respond to the Buddhist view of God? What do I say about what marriage is? How do I respond to questions of transgenderism? How, how do I talk about that? What is wrong with progressive Christianity? Why should on-demand abortion be unthinkable? It should be unthinkable. How do I know there is absolute truth? I mean, just those questions right there, boom, immediately there'll be challenge. And you have to be able, in the words of 1 Peter 3.15, to give an answer to the reason, if anyone asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, and do it with gentleness and respect. And, and so we're going to dive deep into this DNA genome mapping of the gospel that the Apostle Paul, under the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us so that you, you will be changed. I really believe if you eat every piece of this steak, and you walk with us slowly through this. We're going to break it into sections. We're even, we even have a Christmas section on Romans. Are you excited about that? You know, the baby that, that brought Rome to its knees. And, and we're, going to, we're, going to, we're going to have a Christmas section in Romans. We're going to do something no church has ever done before. And, and we're going to do this. And I want you, even if you miss, make sure you follow up that week by, by watching on YouTube, on our channel on YouTube. Why? Because... If you do, you'll be different. You'll be different. You'll be different from the inside out. This will change you and it'll reorient you. Why? Because of this. Romans, Romans teaches what human beings are really like. And what they're really in need of. And what God has done. D-O-N-E. Say those letters with me. D-O-N-E. Because the essence of Romans is it's not D-O. It's not about what you do. It's what he has D-O-N-E. What he has done to provide rescue, redemption, and restoration to the human condition. So much so that Romans teaches a new kind of human being comes out of Christ. A new Adam. A second Adam. I love the way theologian Jack Miller put it. And Tim Keller really popularized this because of his broad reach. In the gospel, we are taught that we are more sinful and flawed than we dare, ever dared believe. As bad as you think you are, you're worse. You really are. But you're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. That's why, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. That's what it means. It's a declaration. Caesar had his gospel. This is my good news. We call it, and today this president has his administration, his platform. It was called a gospel. And in the gospel, we see our brokenness. And we see God's compassion to act on our behalf before we could ever earn our way back. So are you ready, Southbrook, to begin a long journey to Rome and 
see what God has to say to us. Let's start with verse 1 of chapter 1. This was written probably in about 56 AD from the city of Corinth. If you look it up in the book of Acts, it's Acts 20 is where Paul probably wrote this opus. This was his opus. And he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, Paul, his original Hebrew name was Saulos, Saul. And when he went into the Gentile word, he took his Roman name, as a Roman citizen, Paulos. Do you know that Revelation 2 says that there is a name in heaven reserved for you that only God knows? Did you know that? God knows your real name. And Paul had a kind of a precedent of that. And he says, I'm a servant, a doulos of Christ Jesus. That makes sense because lords had servants. And he says, I am voluntarily, this is my identity now. Uh, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. This is one of the things you'll find in Jesus. Jesus eliminates qualifiers of what it is to be a Christian. In Christ, there are no black Christians, white Christians, gay Christians, straight Christians. There, there are Christians. Because <laughs> Jesus doesn't need qualifiers. And, and so you'll see this, this unbelievable lordship thing that, that Paul had a very strong grasp of. Called to be a missionary. That's what the word apostle means. Set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I'll get to this in a minute. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Came through the line, Joseph came through the line as to his earthly life. Why? He was of the seed of the divine. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power. What is the basis for our faith in Jesus? What is it? The resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, not Caesar. Jesus Christ is our Lord by his resurrection from the dead. Now this is really important because remember, remember, God through Jesus, he, he appointed his holy apostles. And he said, I'll give you what to say. And you'll write this down. And that'll be my word to this world of my gospel. But remember this, as we read through Romans, and we have this incredible insight into the DNA of the gospel, the, God, the, the scriptures, that's not the basis of our hope. The scriptures are written because of the basis for our hope, and that's the resurrection. Our faith is rests on the resurrection. It, it rests solely on the resurrection. You take away the resurrection, if they could find bones somewhere that undeniably confirm this is the bone, this is the skeleton of Jesus of Nazareth, our faith would be over. Go golfing on Sunday mornings, for crying out loud, because there's something better to do. And he, So our faith rests on this. This is what changed Paul. And I want to say this. The great mathematician, scientist, Peter Stoner, he was for a long time a, a writer and a mathematician. He calculated, he said... He said, there are 60 major prophecies in the Old Testament of what the Messiah would be. And Jesus of Nazareth fits those. We now know through carbon-14 dating that they weren't added later, that, that many of them were 700 years before he ever walked on the planet. And he said, what are the odds that one person would fulfill that fingerprint of the Messiah, where the Old Testament, as Paul's saying here, would paint a picture that when you see the person who fits this fingerprint, you'll know this is the one. This is the one that we've been waiting for. He said, look at it this way. Here's how big an atom is. An atom, it takes a million atoms set side by side to produce the width of a human hair. Now that's little. A million. He said, if you took the odds of of one person fulfilling those 
requirements of the fingerprint of the Messiah are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's a 1 with 157 zeros. 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That would be the equivalent of taking one random atom and you find that atom in a trillion, 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 billion universes the size of our universe. It's, in, it's, it's, it's infinite. The odds that one person would fulfill the requirements of that fingerprint. Do you see why this Paul goes, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. <laughs> I am not ashamed to proclaim this guy because this is the one we've been waiting for. And he knew what it was like to be opposed to this person because he was, as many of you know. Let's go on. Through him, we received grace, charis, undeserved favor, and apostleship to call all the Gentiles Wait a minute, wait a minute. We thought God was only for the Jewish people. This is calling everyone, all nations, all nations coming together. The, the gospel, it's so tragic that the church was associated with racism because the gospel of Jesus is the most anti-racial statement that God ever made in the world. All nations, Jew and Gentile alike, to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God, called to be his set-apart people. That's what that means. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to thank God through, my, through Jesus, for Jesus Christ for all of you. And this is where you see it's a letter. It's so poignant. It's so personal. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. Paul hadn't been to Rome yet. His desire was to go to Rome. This would be, by the way, this would be like the letter to the New Yorkers. I mean, this is the most influential city in the world at this time. God, whom I serve in my spirit and preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Um, this is where he's painting a picture of what the church should be like. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Those of you who were baptized last week, those of you who are nascent in your faith, right there is a secret to flourishing in a church. Come in the community gatherings for what you can give, not what you can get. And you have cracked the code. <laughs> you have gone from a consumer to a Christ follower. It's not what you can get. Can I impart something to someone today? Can I, can I talk to someone who's lonely? That's why I love uh, Ruth... Graham, she said that I learned early on because I heard sermons from my daddy all the time uh, to learn to go to church for others, not for me. I learned that early on. That's, uh, Paul gives this pattern here. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That's what ought to happen when we come together. We are mutually encouraged. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but invented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you. The gospel is so critical. Paul doesn't want a trickle effect. He wants a harvest. Just as I've had among the other Gentiles, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks. And Greeks were the sophisticated, non-Greeks were the barbarians. So the people who have high society and people who have fringe society, both to the wise and the foolish, the educated and the uneducated, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, 
I went to the Jews first and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul will say later, in Christ, we see God being the just one and the justifier. At the cross, God didn't compromise his justice. He paid for sin's penalty in himself. It's, we see the righteousness of God. That's why Paul will also say in this letter, it is the kindness of God that leads men and women to repent. The kind, we see God's righteousness, a righteousness that you experience by faith from first to last, beginning to end, least to most, just as it is written, the righteous will live by, by what they do in keeping the law. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? The righteous will live by, I have trusted Christ. As a matter of fact, when we get next year, that sounds like a long time away, doesn't it? To chapter 10, and Paul says, say the words, Jesus is Lord, and God goes to work. God goes to work to give you his righteousness. It's not what you do. It's you receive it. And I want you to look, Southbrook, today, real simply, at the words that Paul says in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because, as you'll see throughout this series, um, the passion that Paul has, that I hope we communicate, that this is not one of many options. This one's different from all other options. It's different because all other religions in the world are spelled D-O. It's what you do to get nirvana. It's what you do to, to earn a place. And this one's different. This one is, it's been done. I can't do anything to earn this. I receive it. And we're living in an era where it is very difficult to not be ashamed of the gospel in many ways. I loved it a few weeks ago. I don't know if you saw this, but at the Western and Southern Tennis Tournament, uh, Coco Goff, 19-year-old, fantastic athlete, fantastic individual. I just loved it so much that she won the ladies' tournament championship. And when, when the interviewer asked her, Coco, how you feel? And she said, first of all, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Without, this, without him, none of this is possible. He has been with me through the highs and the lows, and he has promised to always be with me. And it was just such a, it was such a, a sincere, I'm going to give credit to where credit's due. And we know that gets abused. We know that some people say that, and then we realize, oh my gosh, they're not walking consistent with that claim at all, and it's been demonstrated. And so for that reason, many of us are reticent to be able to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word ashamed is also translated offended. I want to show you five reasons why it's easy to be offended by the gospel in our era, and thereby it makes it difficult to know how to talk about it. First of all, the gospel of Christ offends our sense of pride. It is a free gift. It is not something that is earned. That's insulting to human pride. 
The gospel tells us that we are such spiritual failures. The only way to gain salvation is to be a gift. As I've said, if you ever find out that I'm a member at Augusta National Golf Club in Augusta, Georgia, you will know it was a gift. I did not earn that. And if anybody's open to giving gifts, I'm open to receiving them. But this, this offends the moral and the religious who think my decency sets me apart. It gives me an advantage over less moral people. And that's why if you understand the gospel, catch this. I said this a few months ago, and I got word that this threw some people off. And this shows that you've been in the religion of morality. Here it is. Listen to this. If you understand the gospel, you will know it has been your goodness, not your badness, that stands between you and God. I said these words a few months ago. John Gershner said, the thing that really separates us from God is not so much our sin, but our damnable good works. Why is that? If I'm good, why would I hunger and thirst for righteousness? I kind of got it. <laughs> why would I need to hunger and thirst for God? Why would I be desperate, as Jesus said, when you pray to your heavenly father, he said, be, blank, be, be shameless about it, like a, a kid asking their parent who loves them. Why would I do that? If I'm already kind of good, you know, relatively speaking, you know, I, don't, I pay my bills. I don't kick my cat. I mean, I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of good. And it offends. The gospel of Christ offends our sense of respectability. It tells us, and this was a, 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 an official word in Jesus' day, it tells us we are sinners. We are sinners. And this offends our modern cult of self-expression and the popular belief the innate goodness in humanity. This is, this is where the gospel will collide with those of you who are secular humanists. Secular humanism says we were made, we were made as nothing. We were, we, were, uh, we were a slime in the ocean. And if you'll just keep God out of the way, we'll get better until one day we're perfect. Just take God out of it because religion messes everything up. And the gospel says the exact opposite of that. It says we were made perfect and sin was brought into the picture, and we'll get so bad, it'll make your head spin if you take God out of the picture. You'll do stuff as a Lutheran to Jews in Nazi Germany in 1939 that you would have never thought that you would do. That's what will happen. And this, this is offensive. The gospel of Christ offends our sense of goodness. It tells us no one is righteous. Now, this is a little nuance off number one, but this offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in their own way. And what's behind this is I don't lose my autonomy that way, which is the idol of America, is autonomy. Literally, the word autonomy doesn't just mean independence or freedom. It literally means your own law. I'm my own law. I determine what's right. Because what's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. In this sense... This is the most offensive statement Jesus ever made right here. Does everybody agree with this? This is the most offensive statement Jesus ever made. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, one of the things you learn is how inclusive that statement is because no one can earn going to Augusta National as a member. You have to be invited. It has to be a gift. And that's actually the more inclusive way. And Jesus invites everyone because he says no one can earn membership into this salvation club. Nobody can. Actually, religion is what is exclusive, not Jesus. But we don't see it that way. We don't see it that way, do we? <laughs> we don't see it that way. 
I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord if he said that. Number four, the gospel offends our sense of comfort. It tells us the path of salvation is difficult. And this is where we really go off track because the gospel of Christ tells us that salvation was accomplished by Jesus suffering and serving, not by conquering and destroying and dominating. And that following him means to suffer and to serve with him. That's what it means. The, the gospel offends people who want salvation to be dominant and easy. It offends people who want their lives to be safe and comfortable. One of the greatest threats, so much so that we did a series on this last August. Some of you remember, one of the greatest threats to your faith is comfort. If you make your life about comfort, you're going to have a heart, you're going to collide with Christ. Because he said, you got to take up your cushy couch. Is that what he said? Take up your cushy couch and follow me. Is that what he said? He didn't say that. What did he say? Take up your cross, your purpose, your mission. This is, this. by the way, I'm, I'm a student of, of World War II and Nazi Germany. This is what, this is why Hitler killed so many priests and pastors. It's because the gospel was weak. It was weak. It didn't fit in dominant Germany. Greatness of Germany didn't fit. This was offensive to Hitler. And then here's the big one. The gospel of Christ offends our sense of scaled morality, relativism. It tells us there is an absolute standard of right and wrong. You know, if somebody says to you, there is no absolute standard of right and wrong, that's a statement of absolute standard of right and wrong. It's an, impo it's an impossible kind of, there is an absolute standard. To say there's not is to state one. What is it? Well, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he was either crazy, he was either a con man, or he is the Christ to say that. There's, there's, as C.S. Lewis brilliantly said, there's no other option. He's either crazy, a con man, or he is the Christ. Now, one of the things that I know, I told you this back in August, that the Lord has really prepared for me is, is, is the sense that it's going to be more difficult to be a follower of Christ in this culture in the next 10, 20, 30 years. It's going to be more difficult. And how you as a Christ follower navigate that is absolutely critical. It's one of the reasons why we're walking through the book of Romans. And it's one of the reasons why I want to hit this hard today because I would love, love, love for our church to be equipped with this. What Christians often do when they say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is then we begin spouting about what we're against. Because I'm a Christian, I don't do this. I don't dance and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. You know, and I, you know, that, that, that we, we, we start defining our faith by what we're done, what we're against. And that's not the gospel of Christ. That's not the, that's not the way to share the gospel of Christ. And I, lo I love this. This is uh, the, the, the message Bible puts verse 16 and 17. It's news I'm most proud to proclaim this extraordinary message of God's powerful plan to rescue everyone who trusts him. You want to get into Augusta National? Trust the one who's given you the gift. Swallow your pride. You didn't earn it. Starting with Jews and then right on to everyone else. God's way of putting people right shows up in the acts of faith, confirming what scripture has said all along. The person in right standing before God by trusting him really lives that you have a gospel, Southbrookers, where you can go out and you can talk to people about it because it's something that is so amazingly graciously inclusive. 
to people who don't have sinful pride. <laughs> to people who are willing to say, I will humble myself and receive that gift. I love what William Barclay, the scholar, says about that verse. He says, it is amazing to think of the background of that statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul had been imprisoned in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, smuggled out of Berea, laughed at in Athens, and in Corinth his message was considered foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, and out of that he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you ashamed? next Sunday. I love opening Sunday NFL weekend for a lot of reasons. But one of it is, is I just love this church. And what, what happens, you know, you know, you've been around here, what will happen next Sunday? All 32 NFL teams are represented with jerseys next Sunday. I mean, it is crazy. You will see ugly Steelers jerseys. <laughs> oh, can I get an amen from the congregation? Ugly Steelers jerseys. And then you'll see these people who, you, when you see them, you need to pause and say thank you because they're the faithful ones. The ones wearing Browns jerseys are just faithful people. Faithful, I mean, high character people. Next weekend, I'm going to wear a Browns jersey that I got. It's a replica of the 69 Browns jersey. It has double zero on it. The number of Super Bowls the Browns have been to, let alone one. <laughs> let alone one. And the reason that you'll see that is I am not ashamed of the, right? It's, in psychology, it's called a boundary marker. This is my boundary marker. I'm wearing this jersey to show you, you know, it's amazing. Used to people went to games in suits and ties and dresses, and now it's just amazing. You see these jerseys and the, the sports clothing and stuff like that. And I love that because they're not afraid to let people know, I'm passionate about this team. Well, listen, when it comes to Jesus, you're not called to be a fan. You're called to be a player. Think about that. You're called to wear him. You're clothed with Christ, the scriptures say. So that means that in your way, find a way to do this. Speak gently about him when the opportunity's there. I'm going to talk about this in a moment. Don't be afraid to pray openly. When you're at a restaurant, I, I know that, let us all stand. You know, you don't want to do that. But to bow your head quietly as a family, and you've, those of you who do this like we do, you've had people come over and say, thank you. Thank you for just bowing your head quietly, saying, Lord, thank you for this food. And it, it is a way that you do, you do say, hey, we are people of faith. Uh, forgive consistently. This is, as Austin said so well last week, the mark of our faith is reconciliation. That's the mark of a Christ follower. Reconciled vertically with God, reconciled horizontally with other people that we're at enmity with. And, and I tell you, you want to share the gospel, don't use words. Just forgive. <laughs> Even don't stop, you know, using hand signals when people cross you in traffic. Let's just start there, okay? Let's just start there. The bar's really high. I know I'm setting it high here. But then invite naturally. The great thing about this church is that we try to communicate the gospel in a way that if you're on the outside, hopefully you can begin understanding it. That's our social contract. I have one of my best friends in life is here right now. 
And in the last 30 years, he has brought more people to this church than just about anybody I know because he invites naturally. And if you knew him, you wouldn't necessarily think that, that's, that he's that guy. That's what makes him effective. That's what makes him effective. I'm not even sure he's a Christian, to be quite honest, some of the times. But, um, but, but just an invitation. This is what we call the, the, the one, right? The power of the one. The 99 leave the flock and they reach that one sheep. And that's what Jesus says is the heart of the gospel. Um, this, let me, let, me, let me speak into, real quick, I'm messed up with time. Yeah, I've got two minutes. I'm, I, oh, I've got 17 minutes. Let's just keep this party going right here, right now. Talking about Christian faith is more complicated than ever. You can't assume things you used to assume in this culture about what people believe about the Bible, what they believe about Jesus, resurrection. I mean, you just can't assume it, so it's more complicated than ever. That's why the best way to share your faith is, you know what? I used to struggle with that too. And, and, and I found hope in Christ. This is sometimes the most easy way to simply share your faith. It's your story. When the Pharisees brought the man Jesus healed who had been born blind in to question him, they said, what about him? Is he legitimate? And what did the blind man say who had been healed of his blindness? I don't know. I can't give you an apologetic about him. All I know is I was blind and now I see. That's all I know. And that's the best way to share your faith is I was angry and now I have peace. I'm not, I'm not finished. I, I was dishonest and he has made me one. I have integrity. I, I was lost and now I'm found. And that's the simplest way to share your faith. Talking about the Christian faith is more difficult than ever because there will be antagonism. You'll get antagonism. It's not you, Jesus said, they're rejecting. It's me. Just make sure it's him, not you, by the way you share it. And younger adults especially have been told repeatedly, no one has the right to tell others what to believe, so you shouldn't try to convert anyone. Has anyone ever heard that or had them said to them? That is a self-contradictory statement. You're doing exactly what you're saying don't do if you tell someone that. And so as a result, many of you have bought into the lie that you can't share your faith when that's all our culture does, is Disney sharing its faith all the time? All the time. It's, it, all the time. We, if, you, if you're around Christians long enough, you'll get these inside, these inside quotes, or these inside phrases. One of the things you'll hear is, you'll hear me say this every once in a while, is, is a, a life verse. A life verse is a verse that really hits you, and you kind of rely on that. So I have three mainly, 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, perfect love drives out fear. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the other one that I've always held on to is Philemon, verse 6, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you may have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. You will not know your faith if you don't give it away. Because what happens when you give it away is you have a weekend like last weekend and you get to see, oh my gosh, the gospel still works. It still works. I was a part of that. Jesus meets a woman at the well and she walks away from there and she goes, I've got to tell you about someone who knew all my failures and foul-ups and he still loved me. I've got to tell She hadn't been in training. 
She didn't go to an evangelism course. And John 4.49 says, And all in her town came to trust in Jesus because of her witness. Isn't that amazing? Now listen, you're here because someone wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Somewhere, someone wasn't ashamed because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The sophisticated, the non-sophisticated, the educated, the uneducated, the broken, and the good. And you will be my witnesses, Jesus said. You will be my witnesses. I hope you're with us throughout the book of Romans. But more than that, I hope you bring friends. Because this gospel still works, friends. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, who came and did what we could not do, we kept falling down, for all have sinned and fall short. And you provided a prevenient grace to reach into us, to break us with your kindness. Father, may we, as Southbrookers who hold this treasure in our jars of clay, may we go out now and may we be active in sharing our faith so that we may have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Now those of us who will honor your body and blood through communion, may we just say a hallelujah, an amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God for what he has done forever and ever. And everyone said, amen. See you next week, everybody, for part two.